Well, as Nick mentioned, uh, just a pleasure to be back with you to worship on the Lord's Day. I know that there's um, many, even this morning, that are new with us, passing through. We're so thankful that you're here. Um, we've got an elder from Grace Church of the Valley with us this morning, a good friend, Ryan, who's here. So make sure you come and say hello to him if you have an opportunity. Met a family this week that's just passing through for a year, and uh, another that's coming up from Southern California. So it's so great just to have many of you here visiting with us. And uh, thankful for our church family. Um, we, we did not mention, uh, and they probably don't want it mentioned, but it doesn't matter because it is... Terry and Amy's 11th wedding anniversary today. So congratulations, you two. In addition to that, our sister May, it's her birthday today. And so we're just so thankful for our church family. We love our church family. And if you would like to know more about our church, we'd love to, to talk to you about our uh, church. Well, I'm taking a little detour. We've been in the book of Philippians, uh, and uh, I just decided that it would be really sweet for us to reflect a little bit on spiritual gifts. And so we're going to do that over the next two weeks. In part, I'm doing that because I'm speaking at a conference on that particular topic. But as I was studying for that, I realized we need to bring this here. And so uh, I am going to be speaking on spiritual gifts over the next two weeks. And I think we could trace this all the way back to college when I read a very powerful line in a book, and that line was this. I've wasted it. That was the line that I read. The book that I was reading was John Piper's book called Don't Waste Your Life. In that book, he tells a story of an old man who's converted later in life, and he realizes as he gets to the very end that he has wasted it. And so there's this refrain, this lament that I've wasted it. I've wasted it. And reading those words for me in college were very eye-opening. You know, John Piper often says that books don't change people, it's paragraphs, and sometimes it's even sentences and phrases. And for me, as a 20-year-old, when I read I've Wasted It, I thought back to the previous 20 years of my life and said the exact same thing. I have been wasting my life up until this point, running away from Jesus, running to pleasures that never satisfied. And so I remember thinking as a 20-year-old when I was converted, what is it going to take for me to not waste my life? How do I want to spend the remaining years of my life in a way that is not going to be a wasted life? And as I thought about that question, certainly you begin to think, well, if, if I'm going to make my life count, then I need to love the Lord and serve the Lord. Those things are admirable and good. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we live in such a way that we are not wasting our lives? How do we serve the Lord? How do we love the Lord? How do we do those things if the Lord is not here and we can't do that tangibly for Him? Well, the way that we do that is to do what He did. The Lord Jesus came to establish the church, to love the church, to serve the church, to lay down his life for the church. I'm so thankful that the Lord, he didn't just leave it up to us to figure out. He didn't just tell us what to do, but he gave us the power and the instructions on how we are to make our lives count. You know, every week we say this at our church that our mission statement is to glorify God. And how do we do that? You tell me. 
by That's fantastic because it's not up there. So that's coming from your, from your memory and your heart. Knowing who we are, knowing what we're created to do, knowing how we're to do it, that is going to prevent us from wasting our lives. And I'll just say this right at the outset that knowing is so important. It is so crucial, especially as it relates to knowing our spiritual gifts, how we're to discover them how we're to develop them, how we're to deploy them in ministry to one another and towards the Lord and glorifying his name. So over these next couple weeks, that's our focus. Our focus will be on spiritual gifts. Now, when you think of spiritual gifts, I'm not sure that you can pick a different doctrine, a different set of um, theology that is more confusing, that has been more challenging for the church And yet at the same time, I don't think there's another doctrine that is so important for our health and effectiveness as a church. So where do we go to learn about God's heart and mind and will for the church as it relates to spiritual gifts? Obviously, it's the Scriptures, but where in the Scriptures? Uh, If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. The primary text to discover spiritual gifts is Romans chapter 12. We'll make it real easy for you because it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but it's also found in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4. There's numerous texts, even through the book of Acts, where we see the spiritual gifts in action being exercised. But for this morning, we're going to spend our time just looking at the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 12. So since we're kind of parachuting into that chapter and into this book Let me give you a little bit of background and context to help you out. The book of um, 1 Corinthians is a very important letter. And up to this point in the letter, Paul has been correcting much of the Corinthian church's deficiencies, a lot of their errors relates to theology and practice. And it's clear when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, that what Paul is doing is he's actually answering specific questions they had. And so they had written a letter to Paul, and in that letter, they outlined several questions that they're hoping that when Paul, he writes back, he's going to address. And Paul does that. He's actually addressing lots of issues going on in the church, like the issue of division. We see that early on. The lack of church discipline. They were actually taking one another to court and suing each other. So Paul addresses that. He addresses their issues about sexual impurity, Christian liberty, their confusion about the Lord's Supper. And then he takes up a few chapters to talk about what they're doing wrong when they gather together for worship. And it's in this context that we have chapters 12 through 14 where Paul is going to correct them on the topic of spiritual gifts. And I would just say this again, chapters 12 through 14, this is the most extensive section on spiritual gifts that we see in the Bible, and we need this. Because much like the church in Corinth, the church nowadays is negatively impacted by their misunderstanding and misuse of spiritual gifts. But not only is Paul giving instruction, we need to understand this, that Paul is actually rebuking them for their misuse and their ignorance of spiritual gifts. You say, well, what's the answer when people abuse and misuse spiritual gifts. The answer is not no use. 
The answer is proper use. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Now, we don't know exactly what the Corinthians asked the Apostle Paul because we don't have that letter that they sent to him. But based on the content of these chapters and the clarity that Paul brings to their confusion, they may have asked some of these questions. Questions like, well, what are spiritual gifts? How many are there? Does every believer have a spiritual gift? How can a person know which one he has or multiples that he has? How important are these gifts to an individual Christian? How important are the gifts to the life of the church? What is baptism of the Holy Spirit? How does it relate to spiritual gifts? Can spiritual gifts be counterfeited? And if so, how can we tell which gifts are truly being used and which are not? And I'll tell you this, as soon as I became a Christian, two things confronted me. One was the issue of baptism. Someone said I wasn't saved because I wasn't baptized. And then shortly after that, when I was talk, uh, talking to a brother, he said, um, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? I said, well, I was baptized. Does that mean baptized by the Holy Spirit? No, no. Have you been speaking in tongues yet? Well, I have not been speaking. Well, then you're not saved. And it just seemed like, boy, I can't get saved here. I, 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 I repented. I believed. I confessed Jesus is Lord. But people are saying I can't be saved until I'm baptized. And they're saying I can't be saved until I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I can't be saved until I start speaking in tongues. And so as a young man, I was very confused. And what I needed was just the Bible. What does the Bible say? And so Paul, he's going to answer these questions for us. And let me give you the main idea, because the main idea is going to walk us all through this sermon. The main idea is this. A spiritual gift is a special, unique enablement that is sovereignly gifted by God, supernatural in nature, for the purpose of service to the body and salvation of souls and governed by Scripture. And you say, Dom, that's a mouthful, and it's intended to be because I wanted to try to encapsulate all that the Bible is teaching here about spiritual gifts. So this is my definition. You might have a better one, which is fine, but let me read it one more time. A spiritual gift is a special, unique enablement that is sovereignly gifted by God, supernatural in nature, for the purpose of service to the body, salvation of souls, and govern by the scripture. And that right there is going to be our outline as we move through this text. And let's pause here and ask the Lord, the Spirit of God, to help us gain understanding and proper use of our spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for an opportunity now to open your word. And, and we come now, God, with expectancy and humility and eagerness and dependence knowing that we won't comprehend anything, God. We won't learn anything, and we won't practice the right things apart from your Spirit. So would you please help us in our time of need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we begin to break down the definition of spiritual gifts, let's just real quickly talk about the danger, the danger of getting this wrong. And I want you to look there at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to start with the danger because that's where Paul starts. He says there in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant, is what Paul says. Now, your translation might say unaware or uninformed like it does in the ESV and NIV. 
that word agoneo, that's where we get the word, um, we get the word agnostic, which when you think about an agnostic, yeah, I just, I just don't know. I just don't know. And so what Paul is saying here right from the get-go is you cannot have that mind that you don't know about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant, he says. You see, he's usually, when he says something like this, he's addressing an area of Scripture or theology where the church has got it wrong. For instance, he says the same thing to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, same word, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You see, when he's talking to that church, he's saying, look, your joy is impacted. Your effectiveness is impacted. Your witness is impacted if you're ignorant about the Lord's return and about the resurrection. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, and in a lot of ways, he's trying to clear up some, some issues about eschatology and prophecy and the day of the Lord and the resurrection and so on. But he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He doesn't want them to be grieving with no hope. And when you think about the Thessalonians, they were anxious. They were even fearful that maybe they had missed the Lord's return. And so the issue about ignorance is not that you have a low IQ or that you're stupid. It's just that you are unaware. And Paul says, we cannot be unaware. Now, why? We cannot be unaware, church, because if we are ignorant of what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts, it's always going to lead to harm. Ignorance about any spiritual truth in any realm is a threat to our spiritual health and our spiritual growth. Think back to the book of Hosea. In Hosea 4.6, you can finish this statement for me. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So we need to get this right. If we don't get it right, our ignorance will lead to discouragement. But not only that, ignorance often leads to disagreements and divisions. So when people say things like, ignorant is bliss, you say, no, it's not. When people say things like, oh, well, what you don't know won't hurt you, you say, well, what the Bible has a totally different story. The Bible says that if we're ignorant, it's going to harm us, it's going to harm our families, it's going to harm our churches, it's going to derail our growth in grace. And so Paul says, look, church, if we're going to thrive, we need to get this fixed. And so he does that here. I don't want us as a church to be ignorant because I know that it will hamper our progress in the gospel. I want us, on the other hand, to understand God's word, to be capable with God's word, especially as it relates to our spiritual gifts, because I want us to put our gifts into practice. I want us to be effective in our ministry here on the peninsula. I want us to really exalt the name of Christ by living out the truth that the Scripture lays down for us. That's the only way that we're going to glorify God is if we understand what the Bible is calling us to. And so, as Paul, he begins to correct them. He rebukes them. He says there's a lot that they don't understand. And one thing that we're fighting against is immaturity, being children. And he actually calls them that in 1 Corinthians 13. And I always find it puzzling 
when you encounter some overly charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches, and this is their go-to book, and they say, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, but you have to remember that this is corrective. Paul is rebuking them for their misuse and all the mistakes they're making as it relates to spiritual gifts. Now, let's get to the definition. We said first that it is a special, unique enablement. Your spiritual gift, listen, it's special. One of the reasons why there's so much confusion and convolution about spiritual gifts is because they're special, which means that it's not a natural-born ability. It's not an aptitude. It's not an acquired talent. It's not a natural talent. It's actually something out of the ordinary. The Holy Spirit can certainly use natural gifts. He can use natural talents, talents for His divine purpose but our spiritual gift is special than it comes to us by the Spirit of God Himself when we become believers. And it's because this gift or these gifts are special that we as humans have a tendency to either overemphasize them or de-emphasize them. Now, one of the things that make our gifts so special is that each of us possess a unique gift. They're unique. Look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. This is what Paul says. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And then just so uh, we, we don't misunderstand, Paul says this in verse 11. The Spirit distributes to each one individually just as he wills. So look, whether you know it or not, whether you believe you have a gift or not, the Bible is very clear that every single Christian has a unique spiritual gift. And I don't think the fact that you have a spiritual gift limits you to just one gift. I don't think that at all. I think it's more like a blend of different gifts. My wife and I, as we were driving yesterday, we were marveling at just fingerprints. And I said, do you think that twins have the same fingerprints? And so sure enough, hey Siri, and so Siri answers it. No, there's no one person that has the same fingerprint. And all of your fingers have different fingerprints. And we were just marveling on the drive home about the creativity of God. I would run out of creativity. I would just kind of reproduce like 50 years from now, just let's, let's remake a Scott. Same height, same, same weight, same smell, same everything. Let's just redo that. But God, he doesn't run out of creativity. And so every single generation, every single person is uniquely different. And it's the same thing for every believer. He gifts us all uniquely. MacArthur says that it's like a painter who's able to create an infinite number of colors by mixing any combination of the 10 or so colors he carries on his palette. So the Spirit of God blends a little of one gift with a little of another to create the perfect combination within you. As a result, you have a unique position in the body of Christ with an ability to minister as no one else can. How beautiful that is. And because you have a gift that is unique to you, listen to this, you are necessary. You are essential to the body of Christ and to us functioning properly here as a local church. We'll look there at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4, because Paul continues, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, 
And there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything and everyone, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. Now, what I want you to notice there in that text is there's a threefold repetition of the word varieties. He says it, varieties, varieties, varieties. It jumps out. I think Paul repeats this word to help us guard against the tendency to overvalue one spiritual gift over another. Paul emphasizes the diversity of God's gifts. See, there's a rich variety that protects us from a preoccupation of just thinking about that one gift and how often we do that. But he's saying, no, no one possesses the gift and no one possesses all the gifts. If you want to look for someone who possesses all the gifts, then just look at Jesus. He possesses all the gifts. But we're not the head, we're the body. And so each of us have our own unique gift. But secondly, I want you to notice that there's actually five terms here in this text used to describe the Spirit's gifts. Look at them there in the text. The first one, pneumatikos in verse 1, charisma in verse 4, dikaiona in verse 5, in ergnema, verse 6, and phanerosis in verse 7. They're not separate categories. They just each illuminate the other. Let's start with that first one in verse 1, pneumatikos. Now the word for spirit is pneuma. That's where we get our word spirit, and it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a bit. But the second word is charisma, where we get the word, obviously, charisma and charismatic. But it's from that Greek word, which means grace, charis. We know that grace is God's favor, freely given, freely bestowed. It's a gracious gift. And the point of the reference here to spiritual gifts is that they come to us entirely through undeserved favor. You see, God doesn't reward us for our sincerity. God doesn't give us things based on our effort. He, he doesn't he doesn't download us with a gift because of our faithfulness. No, this is a free gift. Which means that you can't earn gifts. You can't pay for gifts. Certainly we can pray for gifts, but God's going to give you a gift because he's a good gift giver. Some people, they like to define grace by saying these three words, in spite of. You see, God wants us to understand that we receive our spiritual abilities in spite of what we've done. In spite of what we're doing, God loves to give gracious gifts. But the Corinthians here had these gifts, but what they were lacking was the fruit of the Spirit. And so he reminds us with this third word, diakonia, which just means ministry or means service. That word tells us that spiritual gifts are given to us so that we might serve one another. See, God has not given us spiritual gifts so that people can be impressed with us, so people can marvel at our gifting and our talent. They're not primarily given so that we would benefit. They're given so that we would benefit others by their use of them. The design of spiritual gifts is to actually serve people, not to be self-seeking, not to be self-serving. The other word I love here, it just means working or, or energies. And the thought is this, that God's power is in action, that God himself works through our gifts. 
As we exercise them in the body, it's God who is at work. And so the effectiveness of our gifts is not something that we ultimately control. It's not like we're turning on the switch and turning it off. No, God wants to work through us to point people to him. And then the final word, this manifestation of the Spirit, it just means that God's character and his power and his love and his beauty is put on display as we put those gifts into practice. So those are the five terms. And together, as you, you clump them together, they reveal that our gifts are spiritual. They're given for the purpose of service and ministry. They can further be described as the outworking or manifestation of God's divine power. God's gifts to us, again, are special, unique. But here's our third word. They enable us. Enablements. When Paul refers to our spiritual gifts, he's not thinking about superpowers, you know, I think about like, well, what can I do? Can I run fast? Can I jump high? Can I be invisible? Can I read minds? I'm thinking like Marvel and DC, comic superheroes. Paul's not thinking like that. These aren't special powers that people possess. These are divine enablements in order to edify the church. That's what Paul has in mind. One commentator argues that the real test for the genuineness of spiritual gifts is not in the fact that something supernatural occurs, but in the use which it is made for. No spiritual endowment has value or rights or privileges on its own account. It is validated by the service that it renders to others. And we'll look at the variety of gifts next week, but it's important for you to know that scholars and theologians like to try to categorize them. So they'll say, well, you've got the sign gifts, and then you've got the support gifts, and then you have the serving gifts, and then you have the speaking gifts. And someone else comes along and says, no, I don't think there are four categories. There's three. There's the miraculous gifts, and then there's the service gifts, and then there's the ministry gifts. And everyone has a category, but the Bible doesn't necessarily categorize them. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many gifts there are, but what the Bible does make abundantly clear is that every single one of us have been given a gift, and it is for the purpose, listen, of ministry, and God himself is the one that gives them. So point number two here, our gifts are sovereignly gifted to us by God himself. I want you to think about this, that God has handpicked, he has packaged and he has deposited into you, at the moment you became a believer, a spiritual gift. Look again at verses 4 and 6. That word same is used three times. There's diversity of gifts, but it comes from one source. And you say, well, Dom, I'm looking here at the text, and it looks like what Paul is saying is grace gifts come from the Spirit, ministry gifts come from the Lord, and effective gifts come from God. So where do our gifts come from? And I would say, yes. It comes from the triune God. And this is beautiful. The diversity of our gifts come from the three persons of the Godhead, and it shows us a Trinitarian nature of the gifts. All three members of the Trinity are involved in giving us gifts. And the reason why Paul intentionally says it this way is because he's thinking unity. Just like the Trinity enjoys perfect unity and harmony, so too all of us that have received gifts are given gifts for that same unity. Look there at verse 11. 
He says again, distributing to each one individually, just as he what? As he wills. Which means that you don't choose your spiritual gift just like you didn't choose mom and dad. Just like you didn't choose whether to be a boy or a girl. God is the one who decides whom and when and where and how and how much of a particular gift you get. I've actually heard someone say, you know, when God was handing out gifts, he didn't give me any gifts. I say, really? It's not what the Bible says. Uh, that might be true if you're not a Christian. But if you are a believer, it is guaranteed that you have a gift. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says. He says this, You possess the gifts you have because the sovereign God of the universe wanted you to be that way. He ordained a plan for your life even before you were born. And he has gifted you specifically to carry out that plan. So never disparage your gift. If you do, you're disparaging the plan of God and perhaps complaining against him. Similarly, never look down on the gift of another. If you do, you are scorning the plan of God for that person. And so when we look at each other, we should never, ever, church, be coveting one another's gifts. We should celebrate that people are made differently than us, gifted differently than us. We need to remember that, man, God is a sovereign God who is a wonderful gift giver. You know, Alexander the Great, he was once given um, an opportunity to give a beautiful and priceless golden cup to a lowly servant. When the servant saw the gift, this was his response. He said, oh, sir, that is too much for me to receive. And Alexander, when he heard that, he got up and said, well, that's not too much for me to give. I think we dishonor the king when we deny that he doesn't give us gifts. I think even worse, we disgrace him when we doubt that he actually delights to give good gifts. So let's just pause real quickly here and ask this question. Well, if God, he gifts us and our gifts are special and they're unique and they're divine enablements, why did God really give us these gifts? And I want you to think of what Paul says later because asking that question is like asking, why do I have lots of parts of the body? And what's the answer to that? Why do you have a foot and a hand and a mouth? The answer is because all of the parts of your body are necessary to function the way God intends you to function. And when we think about the spiritual gifts, it's the same exact way. We can have a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's in our church. We're not going to ever hit a three-pointer, though. We might get some rebounds and get some nasty dunks, but we're going to be dribbling the ball off our foot, and we're going to be missing every shot, especially free throws. So God doesn't make us all the same. He makes us all unique. We all have a special function, and that is to build up the body. So a spiritual gift is a special, unique enablement, sovereignly given by God. And listen to this, it is spiritual in nature. Spiritual in nature. Look back at verse 1. Paul says, concerning spiritual gifts. Now look closely there in your text. You see that word gift? What's different about that word gift? It's italicized, which means that it's not in the original Greek. So literally it reads spirituals, 
Now concerning spirituals, brethren, that's what Paul is saying. And because it's in the masculine or the neuter, he could be talking about spiritual people or spiritual things. The reason that we know he's talking about spiritual gifts is because in 14.1, he's talking directly about spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to list all those gifts. So we know that the subject matter is spiritual gifts, but it's important to point this out because we need to know that the source of these gifts is spiritual and therefore spiritual people. And you say, well, what's a spiritual person or what's a, what's a spiritual Christian? It simply means that you are a believer controlled by the Holy Spirit. In contrast to someone who's led by the flesh, who's carnal, who's earthly-minded, who's fleshly. And Paul's already contrasted the spiritual man and the natural man back in chapter 2. But you say the spiritual man, he's the one that's saved. The unspiritual man is one that's not saved. And you say, well, what's the difference between the two? There's, there's many differences, but the spiritual man not only possesses the Spirit, but he is controlled by the Spirit. And he uses his gifts in the Spirit. Look there at verse 2. It says this, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. What Paul does here is he takes them back. He reminds them of what your life was like before you were spirit-filled, spirit-led. You were pagans. You were Gentiles. You were unbelieving. And you were carried away by these mute idols, these lifeless, inanimate idols. You see, in the Gentile pagan worship system of the temples all throughout Asia Minor, it was the belief that these spirits would come upon the people. And the people would manifest that they were being controlled by these spirits by starting to speak in ecstatic speech. And they would have experiences. Sounds a lot like many churches today that say you're not really being spiritual unless something's coming out of you that's spectacular and magnificent and of a different language. One writer said this, Corinth was experience-oriented and self-oriented. And he said, mystery religions and other pagan cults were in great abundance. From many of the members at the Corinthian church received their initial religious instruction, and after being converted, they had failed to free themselves from pagan attitudes, and they were confused to the true work of the Spirit of God with their former pneumatic and ecstatic experiences of pagan religions, especially the Dionysian mystery and the religion of Apollo. And Paul says this, look, that used to be you. You used to be infatuated with the spectacular. But he's trying to recalibrate them and say, do you want to know what's really spectacular? It's to be spiritually minded, to be led by the Spirit, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And you say, well, what's one of the most obvious ways or obvious, obvious evidences of being controlled by the Spirit? Is it truly to be speaking in tongues? Like many churches say, is it doing miraculous things? All the sign gifts? Look what it says in verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here's the test right here. Not just what you say, but how do you live? Are you living like Jesus is Lord? If you're living and speaking in a way that magnifies the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that comes by the Spirit of God. 
The Spirit is effectively at work when the gifts are pointing to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and producing Christ-likeness. Gordon Fee, a commentator, says this, The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, they begin to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. And this was the problem with the Corinthian church. You show up on a Sunday to visit, it's chaos. Christ isn't being exalted. Everyone and their gifts are being put forward. And it's, wow, look at that. Look at that. Listen to that. But the true test is Christ's lordship. Is it being magnified? Now, the reason that we know that the Spirit magnifies Jesus is because Jesus said that very thing. I'm going away, and I'm going to send my Spirit And when the Spirit comes, He's going to call to your remembrance all the things that I said and did. And He's going to magnify me. He's going to glorify me. And you know this. There are three phases of the Spirit's involvement with us. And those three phases are actually in the prepositions. Our email address, this is, you know this, it's in, through, and for him at att.net. And people have given me a problem because it's such a long email, and why do you want to sound super spiritual? Because even this morning as I was um, securing a flight, every time I type that, I remember that everything is in, through, and for Jesus. So every time, every time I check my email, I have that reminder. The Bible tells us that Jesus sends his Spirit to be in us, that he is with us, But if you remember back to Acts 1.8, he says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. Now you say, Dom, why are you focusing on these prepositions? Because I want you to think back to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus makes a promise. He stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles and he says this in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John elaborates on the next verse when he says this in verse 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the Spirit of God was promised to indwell believers, to empower believers, and to enable us to accomplish the work that Jesus originally came here to accomplish. So a spiritual gift, it is a special, unique enablement that is sovereignly gifted by God, it is spiritual in nature, and it's for the purpose of service to the body. Look at verse 7. It says it as clear as day, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Common good, not personal glory. Common good is communal. We are to reap the benefits of one another's spiritual gifts. Not self-promotion, not self-glorification. 
I've heard some people try to use 1 Corinthians 14.4, where Paul says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. There it is. That's why we have spiritual gifts, to edify ourselves. But if you read that verse, you got to read the whole thing. Because what Paul says directly after that, but the one who prophesies, which is better, is for the edification of the church. That's actually a rebuke. You don't use your spiritual gifts for yourself. You use your spiritual gifts to build up others. Paul's major concern there in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is not building up of the individual. He has in mind the entire church, the community. This is why, listen to this, you cannot do church on television. You you cannot just casually think about church as something that's optional. Church is essential because that's the place where we actually use our gifts to build one another up. And anyone, listen to this, anyone who desires a gift, because that's kind of attractive. I like that. That person's getting attention. That that person's getting congratulated. That person seems to be popular. Anyone is pursuing a gift for self-fulfillment or fame or recognition, the Bible will say very clearly, you have your reward. It's going to come from men. It's not going to come from God. These are grace gifts to the body, so they must be accepted and exercised by faith for the sake of the body, which means that all of us, all of us cannot have a superior attitude about a particular gift that we have. Well, let's explore this idea of common good just a little bit more. And I want to look at a few verses. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, Peter elaborates on this and gives us a clear picture of why we received a gift. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter writes this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another, and then he adds this, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. According to Peter, there are two objectives for our spiritual gifts. It's real clear. It's right there. Serving others and glorifying or praising God And he says that we are stewards of our gifts. We're managers. A manager is someone who manages property or finances or affairs. And we've been entrusted with these spiritual gifts for a short time to do these two things, to serve one another and to glorify God. The other passage that helps us understand that is Ephesians 4. When the common good is pursued, there's several things that will be Produced, And here's the first thing. It's going to unify us. Church, when we use our spiritual gifts, it unifies us. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 13. It says there, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And I will just say this, that I have seen, I've witnessed Lots of churches disintegrate and become disunified because they don't understand their spiritual gifts. They say, well, he's got the gift of teaching. Well, I've got the gift of teaching. I should be the one teaching. You know what we would say if that happens here? Fantastic. Find a place to teach. 
You can have multiple places where you actually use your gift. But if you don't understand that, there's going to be fights and quarrels. And there's going to be pride and arrogance. But the gifts are meant to unify and strengthen the church. It helps us to realize I'm actually dependent on people. I just can't come up here and preach and expect us to have church every Sunday. There was a lot that went into preparing the Lord's table. I just said this morning to our group, I'm so thankful that I don't have to sing every Sunday. Because if I did, no one would want to be here. Our church functions and operates out of all the gifts that God has blessed us with. So there is no one gift that is superior to any of the others. It unifies us. But not only that, listen to this. It makes us mature and wise. Look at verse 13 there in Ephesians 4. It says, To a mature man, that's the goal, that's the aim, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. One of the surest ways, listen to this, to derail our unity and effectiveness is to keep a church immature. So that's why we do expository preaching here. Because maturity is going to come from just a steady diet of the Word of God. Satan loves to bombard churches with false doctrine, with worldly philosophies, and just like a gullible, undiscerning child, churches get duped. And they think they're doing church when they're really not, but actually what they're doing is they're chasing after candy like an unsuspecting little child and they get lured into the van and lured down into the basement, and we know nothing good happens there. That is happening to churches all the time because they're immature and they're ignorant when it comes to what the Bible teaches. But a discerning church, a strong church, a church that's strong in the Scriptures is an effective barrier to the enemy and to his lies. The church that's unified and mature will be wise, but also, listen to this, we will be effective and successful. Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, what does it do? It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, unity has to do with the gift of the Spirit while the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit. But that's not enough. We don't just need the gifts of the Spirit. We need the grace of the Spirit to live by the Spirit. When members of the body fulfill their unique roles of service for which God has gifted them, then by the grace of God, our church will grow. We will be healthy. We'll be growing quantitatively. We'll be growing qualitatively. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with a couple pastors from out of town, and they were asking me how ministry is here. And I said, it's really difficult here on the peninsula. Why? Well, because there's lots of liberal folks. There's not a lot of just strong dedication to expository preaching here on the peninsula. And he kind of stopped me, and he said, well, you have the Bible. I said, yeah. And he said, and you have the Spirit of God. And I said, yeah. And you have the people of God, yeah. And he says, well, you have all you need. 
And he said, expect for the Lord to bless your church as long as you're faithful. That blessing might look different, but you should totally expect greater health and greater number. Because if all of your people are utilizing their gifts and preaching the gospel, the church will grow. And I was kind of rebuked by that because I was kind of like, woe is me. And he said, no, you've got everything that you need. So God gives the church gifts so that Christ would be exalted, so the church would be edified, that we'd be unified, we'd mature, we'd be wise, we'd be effective, we'd be successful. But that doesn't mean that our gifts are only for the church. Our gifts are intended to meet needs in Jesus' name, which means our gifts are not limited to just here, this local congregation. Our gifts are given so that we could be a witness to the coming kingdom. Our gifts are given so that we could warn people of the wrath that's to come. Our gifts are given so we could tell people Jesus saves from sin. So a spiritual gift, again, coming back to our definition, special, unique, enablement, sovereignly given, spiritual in nature, for service to the body, and for the salvation of souls. Church, we have a great commission. And thankfully, God gives us great gifts to fulfill our great commission. When we lose sight of our mission, if we think that our spiritual gifts are only for Christian fellowship, we're in trouble. Think, think back with me to Philippians, where Philippians, we talked about that word fellowship, koinonia. What does it actually mean? It means partnership. It means participation in advancing the gospel. We are part of Christ's body and we serve the body, but we're always adding to the body. And so God has gifted all of us so that we would walk out of these doors and have an impact on our community. It's a mistake to think that there's only a select few who have the gift of evangelism. Churches suffer because they say, God hasn't gifted me with the gift of evangelism. God hasn't made me a discipler. When the Bible says that all of us have a great commission. There's a book called Pray, How to Be Effective in Prayer, where Warren Myers tells a story of two remarkable people. One of them you'll know without a doubt, William Carey. He's a missionary to India, but the other person is Carrie's bed bedridden, almost totally paralyzed sister. William Carey, we know, is the father of modern missions. He accomplished Bible translations, and his work really is unequaled in missionary history. And you say, well, what about his sister? Well, we don't even know her name. She's mentioned only as William Carey's sister. But listen to this, because you probably don't know this. William Carey's sister, although she was bedridden, she labored, not out on the field, not printing out Bibles, not traveling, but she was in her bed in London, and she would pray for hours. Month after month, she would pray for all the details and the problems and the struggles of her brother's work. And in telling the story of Carrie and his sister, Myers asked this question, to whose account will God credit the victories won through this remarkable man? Was it all him? Or was it his sister who probably wished she could get on a plane and wished she could evangelize and wished she could join the efforts when in reality, she was probably empowering those efforts through her prayers? Isn't that thrilling to you? 
You might not have a particular gift, but that does not mean that you cannot be involved in advancing the kingdom. A spiritual gift is a special, unique ability, enablement that is sovereignly given by God, spiritual in nature, for the purpose of service to the body, salvation of souls, and lastly, it is governed by Scripture. And I'll talk about that a lot more next week as we get into each of the gifts. But I just want to say a few things before we close. First, our understanding of the gifts has to come from the Bible. Not experiences, not what other churches are doing, but it needs to come from the Scriptures. We will avoid all kinds of misunderstandings. We will avoid all kinds of misuses of the gifts if we simply believe what the Bible commands that our gifts are for and how we're to use them. It was Warren Wiersbe that said, spiritual gifts, no matter how exciting and how wonderful, are useless and even destructive if they're not ministered in love. So in the final analysis, when we go to the Bible, we find out that the thing that drives and motivates and empowers our gifts is love. We like to think about 1 Corinthians 13 at the wedding. We're going to have Jake and we're going to have Nicole getting married soon, and I'm probably going to mention that in the message. But the reality is 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle of how we're to use our spiritual gifts. Love must be present. If it's missing, our gifts will be misused. If our gifts are being used apart from love, then our gifts are useless. And so the Bible determines and the Bible tells us that we are to practice our gifts and we are to be propelled by love for one another and love for a lost world. Look, the Lord wants us here at Grace Church Monterey Bay to know our gifts, to use our gifts, to exercise them in love. Let me close with this story. There was a husband and wife, and they went on a vacation for the 25th wedding anniversary. And on their itinerary, they had a three-night stay in Switzerland. And when they arrived at the hotel, it was really late. All the restaurants were closed, and so they decided to eat at the hotel restaurant. But after they looked at the menu and the prices, they thought about fasting for the night. The prices were astronomical, but they rationalized, hey, it's just one night. Tomorrow we can go to the store. We'll, we'll get some treats, some snacks. We'll make some peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Let's live it up tonight. And so they did, but they saw that price tag. That food, when they ate it, was so good. Best food they ever had. Delicious. It's all they could talk about. The three days in Switzerland. Oh, there was beautiful, majestic mountains and sights. But it was that food. It was that meal. And they wished they had an unlimited budget so they could just keep going back to that restaurant enjoying that food. When it was time to check out, they walked past the restaurant to the front counter. They smelled the food. Oh, man, that was such a good meal. But when they got the bill, he went to pay for the bill. And when he looked on the bill, he noticed that that charge that he had charged to his room was not actually there. And so he said that that first night we had a really expensive meal. It's not, it's not on the bill. And the attendant said, well, when you booked the hotel, it was all-inclusive. You could have eaten at that hotel, restaurant, anytime you wanted. 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So that's a funny story. But churches are like that all the time. We have no idea what kind of power is available to us by the power of the Spirit because we're ignorant of our spiritual gifts. You have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ living in you, empowering you every day, morning, noon, and night. And people need a meal. We don't create the meal. We don't cook the meal. We're just servants, waiters who serve the meal and say, behold, how beautiful and sweet it is when Christians dwell together. Would you join us? Would you repent and believe Jesus Christ? Will you experience forgiveness of sins and the glory that is to come through Jesus who offers it to you freely as a gift of grace? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we um, are encouraged and uh, maybe convicted. We thank you for what the Spirit does through your Word. Um, Father, we, uh, we need to know this truth. We need to understand that we all have gifts. We're all unique in our gifting. We've all been enabled to exercise our gifts, to bring you glory and to build up the church. And so, Father, I pray as we continue to muse on this message and as we come back next Sunday and we think, Lord willing, about the gifts in particular and how we're to discover them and develop them and deploy them, I pray that you give us great grace. And Father, as we go from here, I pray that you would help each of us, each of us, to be in tune with your Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and to be mindful that you have called us to be responsible, good stewards, to use our gifts, to glorify your name, to build up our body, and to reach a lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.